Good afternoon, listeners, and welcome back to the Total Football Analysis Podcast, your weekly dose of all things football, tactics, and coaching related. I'm your host, Adam Scully, and we have another exciting episode for you all today. I was personally very excited for today's episode of the podcast. Last week, we brought you a wonderful interview with the fantastic Chris Casper, who has been the sporting director at Salford City for the past five years. He was formerly a member of the infamous class of 92, which came up through the Manchester United Academy and told us about how competitive and brutal the system was from the perspective of a former player in that environment. As well as now in his current role where he's looking at Salford's own youth products either making it or leaving the club, which can be incredibly difficult for everyone involved. Today, however, we have another man on the podcast who knows just how competitive Man United's academy is, but from an entirely different viewpoint. That man is Paul McGuinness, who worked as the under-18s head coach of the English Giants for more than a decade, from 2005 to 2017, overseeing the development of some huge talents, including Jesse Lingard, World Cup winner Paul Pogba, and none other than Marcus Rashford. Overall, Paul spent 28 years at Manchester United in a plethora of different roles, even surpassing the 26-year shift put in by Sir Alex Ferguson. Paul also worked for the FA and would help to run courses, including the Pro Licence course, so he was not just helping to develop the next generation of players in England, but coaches too. Right now, he's the head of player development at Leicester C, overseeing young players transitioned into the under-23s and the first-team squad. Paul, the son of former United head coach and Busby Babe, Wilton Guinness, has some incredible experience in coaching and is someone I learned a lot from during the podcast, and I'm certain you all will learn from too. Paul kind of joined us today to speak about his coaching roles throughout his career, his coaching beliefs, his philosophy of developing players, and much, much more. He even gave some funny little anecdotes about his time at Manchester United, including naked Robbie Savage. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, because I know I certainly did. Paul, thank you for joining us today. How have you been? Yeah, great. Thanks, Adam. Yeah, yeah, really pleased to be on with you. Paul, you were a player yourself, but eventually went into coaching. What influenced you to move into that side of the game? And it was, was it always something you wanted to do, you know, following into your your, your father's footsteps, Wilson McGuinness, of course? Yeah, it, it pretty much was. As soon as I was, uh, I don't know, four or five, playing in the back garden with my dad. And um, I remember vividly him bending the ball to me. And I said, how did you do that? And he, he, he showed me, you know, you, you, you move to the side, you set the ball to the side a little bit, now you've got to kick around the side of it and follow through to where the ball's gone. I was like captivated with that straight away and, and the whole thing with the ball, how, how it moved and all those things. So I'd practice against the garage door and I'd be uh, practicing. I suppose then you, you're starting to coach yourself in a sense. You're starting to see how you learn. And, uh, and you know, from, from then on, yeah, I wanted to be a player. But of course, I'm surrounded in my life by a dad and his mates and a lot of people who are coaches and football players. But like anybody, you might think, well, I'll follow my dad into that. Uh, and I, I started to to sort of love it, really. Played at school, but then every summer holiday, I would um, go with my dad to the club, whichever club he was at. So then you get immersed in what a football club's like. You start to see more coaching, but you... You, you get the atmosphere of the club. If you go with your dad at that age, you, you're going early. He's in early, might be in mm. at 8, 8.30. Everybody else plays are coming in an hour later. So then you might be doing jobs with your dad, packing kit or doing stuff. Um, I remember at Berry, he had his painting, all the apprentices painting a stand, doing all sorts of things. <laughs> um, and then you'd help with the kit. You'd, you, you just get immersed in a whole atmosphere of being in a football club, which I remember now... Uh, 
is important because you've got to learn how to behave. Then the first team would come in, the first team manager you might sit in a dressing room with with the players, so you got you get a feeling of all the banter, but also when or when not to say things, and you start to see managers up close. So I was studying all that. I was quite shy, really, but I would sit there and, and listen and watched. So in all my school holidays, I'd be doing that. And of course, when it was my games or so, my dad would be giving me little tips on the game, never letting you get too carried away. I remember, I remember one time scoring a hat-trick, one with the left foot, one with the right foot, in a cup final. And I came off afterwards and he, he wouldn't let me get carried away. He said, well, why do you throw the ball down and argue with the referee? That's not good enough. He was always trying to keep your feet on the ground, but also come at it from a coach's point of view, mm -hmm. how you could get better, uh, things like that. And then we would go on the, the field and practice uh, when, you know, when I was a kid, uh, overhead kicks, volleys, all that. So that my dad's coaching me and I'm starting to, he, he wasn't forcing it. It was just happening naturally. It was just fun for us. But of all those things I was learning off him, then he would go scouting games. So I'd be from the age of about, 12, 13, going to games with him in sat in the director's box at different clubs, watching all scouting players or games. And he talked to me about the game and asked me questions. One vividly stands out. We were, it, was, uh, it was at Newcastle at St. James's Park and they were playing Aston Villa. Uh, it was a long time ago, obviously, because it was said, who's the best player then? Who do you like? Who do you think's got potential? Oh, I said this young lad, he was only 17, blonde hair. Gary Shaw, the way he moved, the way he turned with the ball, all these things. So without knowing it, I suppose I was just finding out all the craft knowledge of what a coach does. Um, and what was it, the most important uh, attribute, I'll say, that your father told you to look for when scouting players? Well, the first thing is to is, is like the actual observation skills itself and to to really you know, be looking at what they're doing, could be on or off the ball. So he'd say things like, oh, look at number six, he's going to get booked any minute. I'd go, how do you know that? I said, well, if you watch him off the ball, he's just had a tackle, and now he's moaning at the referee, and now the next thing's happening. Look, watch, watch it, bang, there he goes. <laughs> just, he's just kicked someone up in the air. And so you start to read all the game and read what's going to happen. Um, and then obviously, you know, how you would coach those things as well. So it's like, yeah, being just immersed in someone who's got a craft knowledge. I think, you know, people who, who grow up alongside this, like an apprenticeship, isn't it, alongside people mm -hmm. for that that sort of craft, you sort of smell different things. You'd, you'd know in the club if there was something not quite right in a dressing room, you think, oh, I'm keeping quiet here, or, you know, uh, or you'd see the manager, you'd, you'd listen to the manager's conversation about players, or I'd be in, in a watching a game and at halftime all the coaches would come together so experienced guys or scouts and you know I just overhear their 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 conversations and ask my dad about it afterwards and you're taking it all in sort of immersed in it all um so a lot of learning is when you don't know haven't got the knowledge a lot of it's sitting there and watching mm -hmm. it happened to me later when I was first at United as a player but then I was in as the um, education welfare officer at first Sir Alex's sort of part-time role, but it, it was ahead of its time. There wasn't, nobody really had those at the time. Just after I'd finished playing there, I was, I was only in my 20s, but it gave me the opportunity to sit in the coach's room. So I would go in early. I didn't have to be in there all the time. I'd just sit there and listen. You've got Brian Kidd, Sir Alex Ferguson, Nobby Styles, Eric Harrison, Jimmy Ryan. And you think, well, there's not really much point in me saying anything because I can't contribute much more, you know, but over time, they would start asking you questions, get your point of view. But just by listening, 
you're 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 learning so much from these people, you know. Um, That's some room of, of titans of football in there. Wow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And you've got, I suppose, you got to know your place, and but you, you know you can learn. And if you do, you, you you pick up a lot a lot of tips through that. I remember once trial game. I was when I first got the job doing the sense of excellence. I was in charge of all the trial games and all all of coming from Ireland, Scotland, Wales, all over. And I was really busy trying to sort out the kit, sort out the the, um, the team sheets and everything. I got out, you know, about 10 minutes after the start of this game. And everybody's on the side, the scouts. And I'd heard them talking about this player, about what he'd done. And then Brian Kidd came up to me and said, well, who have you seen? Who's doing well? And I didn't really want to say, I've not seen the start, Brian, because I was inside too busy, you know. So I said, oh, he's doing quite well. The number nine, he's, he's and he said, what? He said, well, what have you seen? Uh, and he said, don't be listening to anybody else. He said, you've got to make your own mind up and watch, you know. And that's, that can be a big fault for people scouting. So they hear everybody else, so it must be all right. So you, you've got to really take the time to not be distracted and and watch yourself and get your form your own opinions, yeah. Um, but that all came from, like, yeah, with my dad just watching, going with him, listening to him, talking. So, yeah, I, that was a massive part of my sort of, uh, yeah, growing up, wanting to be a player first, but also because my dad broke his leg, my mom always said, "You've got to get an education behind you." So mm. I pushed the education side. I was I was at a great school in York when my dad was there, uh, called Nunthorpe. They let you play every sport you could possibly play. For me, it was like paradise, and they had like um, houses with there were Saxons, Danes, Celts, and Normans, and you played basketball, round robin, you played football, rugby. Everything was a round-robin competition, which was great. And the PE teacher there was a guy called Pete Bibby, and he did maths as well. So he'd come into the maths lesson, and to me, he was like a god. You know, he came in. He was so smart, big, handsome guy. But he came in with the Great Britain Olympic blazer on, with the badge on. And I was like, wow. He was the volleyball. He played volleyball for Great Britain. He was the volleyball coach. So he did volleyball at lunchtime, basketball. For me, it was like sport paradise. You know, so that got me in my mind. I wanted to, if I wasn't going to be a player, I'm mm -hmm. going to be a PE teacher. So that was on the way to being a coach and following in my dad's footsteps. And then also I'd heard all the stories from my dad about Matt Busby, particularly Jimmy Murphy, who was the youth team coach. He was the assistant manager. When they won five youth cups, he was the coach. Um, he was the one uh, when they had Munich, he, he was the Welsh yeah, national yeah, team yeah. manager. And because he didn't go on, the, on a flight, he took over then, got them to Wembley and was then got Wales to the quarterfinal of the of the World Cup. I imagine that. He also took the youth team at Man United. So what at that time they had the Matt Bosby of the time of the crash was the manager of Scotland, part-time, and the manager of Wales was part-time managing the youth team and reserves. So my dad was telling me loads of stories about him and how he how he really encouraged him. Um and coached him. So it became like, it sounded like, well, that was his personal coach. But then you asked some of the other players, and they said, yeah, he was my personal. Yeah, so he, one time we were on a trip to Kenya. It was a brilliant trip with uh, with Sir Bobby Charlton. So this was amazing. We were like in some country club in a mini Kenya, and Bobby Charlton sat there just telling stories to these young lads who were 15. And I'm sat on the table thinking, I hope they realise how, like, look at the are. He's telling about the World Cup and Sir Alf Ramsey, and then he's talking about, he said, do you still do individual coaching? 
I said, yeah, we do individual coaching for goal scorers. He said, no, no, I had a personal coach. He said, my, my personal coach was uh, was uh, Jimmy Murphy. He would take him, he said, even when he played in the first team, he'd take him to Old Trafford on a Sunday after a Saturday game and he'd kick balls all to all over Old Trafford and make Bobby run and bring them back. Bobby, you've got to be fit if you only play in the first team. And you think how elegant a runner Bobby was, and he's, that was a real strength. So he was making that strength even stronger. Then he used to take him behind the strep for then, uh, where it was a wall, and say, right, shoot, because he's got another strength. Obviously, was he shooting both feet? He said, just hit it, both feet off the floor, um, as hard as you can, straight at the goalkeeper. Straight at the goalkeeper. He says, well, you're, you're 25 yards out, 30 yards out. If you try and hit straight at the goalkeeper, it's going to swerve one way or the other. And if he doesn't know where it's going, how, will, how if you don't know where it's going, how will he sort of thing? And so he impressed on me how important this guy had been on him. But my dad had said the same things, how he practiced with him and encouraged him and to, spoke to him. So that led to me wanting, I want to be like this guy, Jimmy Murphy. I want to do that. And amazingly, I followed in his footsteps. Like my dad, I ended up taking the youth team United yeah. and winning a youth cup. So that was a real... I wanted to be a player first, but I always had it from the age of about 12, 13 and be a, if I'm not PE teacher and so on. And because of that ambition, I didn't go full-time at United uh, straight off. I, I took A-levels. Then I had a year full-time and I said, well, I'm going to go and be, go to Loughborough to do PE and sports science. So was your first coaching role then at Manchester United? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was very inexperienced when I got there. So, mm. but I'd had this now, I, I was with... It was on a run at Atkinson at first. And it was, I was in the reserves, but it was very difficult to get consistent games because all the first-team players played in the first, I played every week with five, six, seven, eight internationals. You know, Paul McGrath, uh, it would be uh, some, sometimes someone like Brian Robson if he's coming back from injury, but it would be Paul McGrath, Kevin Moran. Um, it would be Whiteside or Hughes or Brazil or Stapleton or Muran. Or, so it was amazing, but you couldn't get a proper always a proper run and then I was like well I'll, I'll they said we well, give another contract so I'm thinking of going to university and it like you're young you think you can do it all you know I'll do it part-time because I wasn't sure you know and uh, so I ended up going to university but it was too much so after a year they let me let me go had a bit of a time at crew Dario Grady some good tips there coaching there and then then I, it was hard to do both and I got a great bit of advice from the guy at Loughborough. Nobody had ever said anything like this to me before. But I was, do I chuck in the college because the football wasn't going great? Or do if I took, chuck that in and the football falls, what should I do? So this guy came and said to me, well, look, he said, why don't you play football here? Carry on your studying, get the qualifications. And... Um, and you can play football with us. We've got a really good team. They did have a good team. Uh, but obviously, it's less of a standard. And he said, why are you doing that? You know, go out with the lads, have a few drinks, you know, chat to a few girls, pull a few girls, and, and have a good time. And I can honestly say to you, I had never, ever thought of that before. My whole thing was just football, 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 football. I had no... So when I went there, was such release from the, the sort of stress of doing that it was so enjoyable playing with those lads there and I was I still thought I might be able to play football I might be able to but then I went to America with them in the summer coaching and then I'd agreed after my final exams to go to the states again coaching and my mates went they ended up building their own uh, 
football coaching business and everything. So I could have gone with that. But what happened was, because I always loved it in IT, I knew Eric Harrison, I knew Brian Whitehouse and so on. When this was now the Fergie era, but they weren't doing very well. They, they were struggling, the pitch was poised, trying to build a team. They were struggling. And uh, I just went in at the Easter, I think it was, just to say hello. Go into the cliff, say hello to them. And they were like, wow, oh, great. Um, he said, you know what? What are you doing? I still at college. You could have played for the reserves last night. They, we played at Main Road, City. You could have played. We needed you. I was like, what? He said, yeah, can you play next week? It's like Barnsley away or something. I said, yeah, yeah. And I played about eight games. And they were struggling because they had people like Tony Gill, Russell uh, Beardsmore. They call them Fergie's Fledglings, first little group that went in. But they were they were struggling. They maybe weren't the quality and the team wasn't doing great. They hadn't won the league, nothing. He was trying to build a team. Uh, Daniel Graham, David Wilson, people like that in the squad that would normally be in the reserves and not in the reserves. So you need people to fill in. And... Um, so they said this, so I said, I played the eight games. The last game, they needed to win the last game to stay up, to stay in the Central League. And it was um, playing in the team with Steve Bruce. Steve Bruce played. Strachan played. I think McClare played. Blackmore, so, and I played. It was like, the, the, the pitch was a mess. It was on the day, I think it was the day Coventry won the league, uh, the FA Cup that, that morning. And... Uh, you know, they were struggling. They were desperate to stay up. You know, they didn't want to go down in the in the Central League. So after that, I was still going to the States, taking my exams, and they phoned me and said, well, would you be interested in, in come in, speak to the manager? I was like, yeah, not half. Yeah, so I go down. He sits, sits me down, the manager, so Alex, well, Alex then, wasn't it? And uh, he says, right, um, we've been impressed with you. You know, we, we know you from when you came before, good attitude, all these things. He said, what I like to do is have all my age groups filled. So I like to have, you know, apprentices, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds in the reserves, 21, 22, 24. And I said, I've got a gap. Oh, you want, I need you to fill a gap. And all through his, whenever I went in his office in the future, he had a pad, just a, just a normal pad he'd roll over. And he just had all the names of the players with their ages. And he made sure there wasn't any gaps. Because if you have a gap then you're lacking in certain experience and who's going to drop. And then who drops off at the end? They're too old. There's nobody to fill it. So he, he, he wanted that. And he said, well, you come in, be an older head with reserves, play in the reserves, captain the reserves for a year or so. So I did about, I did a year then. And then he started, well, uh, other people got in the team then. Darren Ferguson got in. So I wasn't going to get in before Darren was. No chance, <laughs> but, you know what I mean? So I did my, my sort of stint. And then, I struggled to get a club. I ended up going to Chester. But before I went, and, he, and he, this was great, he said, look, make sure you get your coaching badges. So this is Sir Alex as he's letting me go. So you've got a career in coaching. You know, if you do it, obviously from my dad, from doing the sports mm -hmm. science, and I was a good reader of the game talking, must have seen something in me. So then I had a year at Chester, but that was a disaster. I could hardly get a game there. It, it, just, it just didn't suit me to the type of football. And I didn't do very well. And then I'm looking for a club. And he rings me up the next year and says, look, come and do this job. I need it. You know, someone to look after the digs. Joe Brown, who was, he'd had an accident, car accident. Joe Brown is the youth development officer. And he needed, um, he, he needed someone to help him and, 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 and take over, really. And looking after the digs, the education. Now, I think he thought I was a teacher because I'd been to Rockwell. But I hadn't got a teaching qualification. I'd only got sport, well, got sports science. That was new then. P in sports science was a new degree. And, uh, 
So yeah, I'll, I'll do that part time. You can play for someone, do what you want, just be in here a few days a week. So I start to get my teeth into that. Go with Joe. Some bits of it were a bit laborious. You know, you've got to go to all the digs and listen to the problems and go around on Friday night when, say, Friday night, get ring up and it's like the London lady's crying her eyes out. They're, they're running all over. They pulled the, they've pulled the radiator off the wall. And so I have to arrive. I'm on the way to this pictures, you know, with their girlfriend. <laughs> So I arrived there and I could hear it. She answered the door. I hear this running, do, 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 running upstairs. And then, so I chase up the stairs, go, go in the room. There's, uh, there's Gillespie, Keith Gillespie and Savage, both absolutely naked, no clothes. On. They, they're having a massive pillow fight and chasing all over the house. And all. You know, so it was a bit of a, you've got to do this sort of job. You know? <laughs> Um, look after the college bit with them and 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 all that. You know, you you try getting Mickey Bottoms, Paul Scholes to go to college on a Thursday. It's not easy, you know. So you would have Chris Casper. Class, class of ninety two then. It was class of ninety two. Chris Casper yeah. with them. So yeah, they were good. It was great because there was a buzz about it. Everybody knew they were coming. They were a really good team. Everybody rated them. So to be around that at that time and some of the things that I did with them, I did. Really, you can blame me for a lot. I can you can blame me for quite a lot because I started the first media training course. So I had this media training, and it was really good. They were great. The people who did it. It was Eamon O'Neill, uh, Jimmy Wag, and uh, uh, Andy Buckley from BBC. So they were all pros. They were all used to doing all the stuff, and they had a course on uh, newspaper articles, TV filming. We filmed the lads, and some there's some film of that going around. And of course. Gary Neville's busy, so he he was like into it. Beckham, you know, thought he was a film star, so he's like he didn't mind it. Scholes, he hated it. You know, he couldn't look in the camera. <laughs> stuttering, all the lads taking the Mickey, stuttering on the on his words. But I think it was a really good exercise. You know, they got mm-hmm. filmed twice, they got it reviewed. They did. I think it helped them because they knew this is a group who could get in the first team. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we carried on for a bit, but after I left that role, if they, I'm not sure they carried it on as much. But it, that was that was a good bit. So I've I've got like these. Started them off, Gary Neville on his media career, and uh, and Scholes and all these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ben Thorne, he was on it. You know, he does it now as well. You know, so but I think I think it was a good experience for them, and it, I think it helped them know the club thought they were going to get mm-hmm. to the first team. They were preparing them for that, so that they weren't caught out with anything, and the the, the guys doing it were very professional. So so it was good. Um, yeah, and so that I was then doing that role, but Joe Brown said. He said, why aren't you coaching? You need to be coaching in a sense. I'd done my prelim badge and stuff. So it was Nobby Styles was in charge. And then different of the senior coaches would go. It would be Mondays and Thursdays, Tuesdays and Wednesdays for different age groups. So he, he got me in. It was quite, not amateurish, but, but it wasn't, it was one night a week. And they didn't play for you. They played for other clubs. So they mm-hmm. might start playing for you at 60 and there was no teams. It, was no, it hadn't come in then. And um, Nobby was brilliant. He was brilliant. He'd line them all up, go bang, 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 bang. You come down with me, you go up there with Paul. He goes, you do all the tricks, the turns, the cover stuff, all that, and I can't do that. And you do that, and I'll be like, he's a World Cup winner. You know, he's like, yeah. he's like a god. <laughs> and uh, after the session, you know, I'd do the same thing every session for about, and, and sort of make it better by the end of the week. And he'd sit in the bath. There was two baths there, and he'd sit in the bath. He's a World Cup winner. He's a legend, you know. He's probably the nicest guy you'd ever meet in football. He was so kind and, you know, for such a hard man, he was so gentle and kind, mm-hmm. real gentleman. 
real fantastic guy. Learned a lot from him. But he'd be encouraged, he'd be going, well, I watched what you're doing, you know, that far end. And those tricks and turns, fantastic. He says, no way I could do that. And it's like, I'd be like he'd feel 10 feet tall. You know, he was brilliant. Um, he, made, he made you feel great. I remember one time we were having some trials, kids from all over Ireland, Scotland, Wales, all that. And, you know, first of all, like, when you first see him as a kid, you go, they probably the scouts had to tell him who he was because he was not Flash, not... And and uh, he's got World Cup winners medals and he's got European Cup winners medals. Yeah? And he was known to be um, a bit forgetful or clumsy or what have you. you know. Bit... So he said, oh, the, the lads have asked to see his medals. Some cheeky lad from Dublin probably said, oh, go on. <laughs> no. So the next day he, he says to me, oh, I've brought those medals in. I said, what? He said, yeah, yeah. So where are they? He had them in his pocket in a brown... He's on the field. He could have dropped them or anything. These two medals, I like, wow. There's only him and Bobby Charlton got them. And it's like, wow. He says, yeah, she, you know, she and the kids have got them in the hand and they're beautiful. They're only small. They're not big. And um, you're like, wow, that's gold dust. You know, you're like, boy, he was so unassuming. It was such a really good guy. So you're learning a lot of all those. And unfortunately, don't, nobody... Nobody did dinner after dinner, so on and what have you. And it ended up that, well, for one reason or another, he ended up leaving. Mm -hmm. So that was a big shock, you know. And then was a bigger shock. The manager called me in his office. I'm only doing part-time coaching. I'm not got any record or anything. He says, oh, you're going to take over the Centre of Excellence job. And like, I, well, he couldn't say no. I'm just like, right, okay. Walked out the door. I thought, Jesus, what? That's like running... It's not, they're not as big as the academies now, but basically the responsibility is you've got to, all the coaching from eight to sixteen, all the coaching mate from sixteen, all the all the scouting in the Manchester area, and all the basically all the organisation, the scouts, coaches, the parents, everything. And it's only me. Before Brian Kidd had done it, and Nobby Styles, I'm following them. It's like that. So he was like, I was both excited, but like, how was the, how was the pressure then? Did, did you feel the pressure, or was it just was it quite an easy yeah. transition? No, well, it wasn't easy, but you just you were in it. That's it. You're doing it. It's every night of the week. It's every day of the week. It's like you just go for it. And he, I, my big thing was, I don't want to ever let this guy down. And that's how everybody felt there. He got a chance. He's giving you a chance, and I was like, I couldn't believe it. And I would never thought of it. You think you have. To, wasn't even coaching full time, so to, for him to do that, I, I always, I've never asked him why he did it. <laughs> he must have been in you. I had that feeling mm -hmm. because of my dad, because I've been in there, and I was probably, I was there all the time and didn't need to be. He's probably thinking, well, he's conscientious, he'll do it. And wow, it was, it was. We had great people. All the scouts, they taught me how to do the scouting, you know. And then from there on, we had people like Tony Whelan and come in full. He started to come in full time. We got more full time people, but you got the best people to to watch from Eric Harris and Jim Ryan and people like that. You know, so but it was like full on. You know, it's full out, just constant. It was just, but. Uh, Amazing, yeah. Did you work alongside Eric Harrison a lot? Because last week, mm -hmm. so I had Chris Casper on last week, mm -hmm. and he was telling me all about Eric Harrison. He was saying yeah. he was one of his inspirations. He he, yeah. he taught him so many things about football. How good yeah. was he to work with? And did you work very closely with him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Eric's a real man's man. Like a real, I think he he'd had a lower league career, but really knew good football. He worked a bit with Brian Clough. He wanted the best for the players that he hadn't had. 
but he also knew the realities of a football life. So he wanted to get the absolute fundamentals into you, the abs- uh, fundamentals. He was one of the first, I think, and he did it every day, uh, a passing routine where you've got to look over your shoulder before the ball comes. Uh, it may, uh, that's the making a lot of the players. You know, you look at every time you watch the TV, you look before it comes, you look before it as it's on its way. They're all looking, they all get connected then. He did that every day. Remember when I took over, he said, well, if the players get bored with it, show them the door, get rid of them. Because if that's the game, if they haven't got that and the ability to to do it, then it was tough. But he, uh, I was listening to Doug Lamarff, he's a, he does a lot of uh, education, coaching, um, teaching, and links it to links it to coaching. We're saying about well, a lot of people nowadays you got a good you got to get a good relationship with the players, and you've got to all this stuff. You got to make them feel good, know the family. Don't get me wrong, that's important. That's important. But he said the most important thing is that they know you're teaching them because now they want more. And that's all I can say about Eric Harrison. He, he, you listen because everything he said came true on the pitch. Every practice session was clear. You could see the pictures. I've got so many like breakthrough moments or, or things I remember so clearly from him. I remember because I came, was going in part time in, in the afternoons or in the weekends and uh, after uh, evenings. And then I would go in the, in the school holidays. So I remember clearly playing this game, putting my head down. Gary Worthington, who works for City now, he, he came towards me. I put my head down, played the ball to him, and Gary had spun. So he spun behind and I, he, he took me to the side afterwards, Eric, and said, Look, that's the signal. We've been working on that. If he comes short, he's going long. If he goes long, he's coming short. If he goes inside, he's going outside. Just made it so clear. I was like, wow, this is fantastic. They're never going to catch this, you know? So that was bang. And you don't see a lot of people do it. It was so clear. Um, you couldn't do it. It was tough. It was hard. But they, 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 they were so memorable. You respected what he did. One one afternoon, I remember we trained in the morning. You know, train, you, you, your legs are a bit heavy. You've trained hard in the morning. You have your lunch. Come back out. You go in the indoor, which was quite a sandy astroturf. Start off five minutes dead slow. This game, we're all a bit slow. And then me and this other lad go for a ball. And really, if, if you just missed time today, it was quite dangerous. So both of us sort of skidded on the sand with the ball between us. I stopped the session. He marched on to the middle of the pitch. I can't tell you exactly what I said, but it was to the extent of putting his hand towards my throat and saying, if you ever pull out of a beep tackle again, I'll rip your... Basically, rip your throat out. Now you can't be going. You can't be doing that sort of thing nowadays. But like, I can taste it, the 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 memory of it, and I can tell you virtually to the inch on the pitch where it was. Now people might say that's that's not right. I said, but it, it was so clear that he was giving you a lifelong lesson in football. If you want a career in football, you're not going to do that. Now it's changed a bit now because you would pull out of some tackles mm-hmm. knowing you're not going to. But in those days. You, you wouldn't do, and um, but he was so clear in in everything he he did. Um, he was he was fantastic. But he was you know Jim Ryan was also a great foil for him because Jim added a, even more finesse and uh, and different aspects to it. So they were a good partnership. Jim doesn't normally get a lot of the recognition because normally it's you, you, your under eighteen coach does have an out, can have an outstanding effect on you. Yeah. And then you eventually went on to become the under 18th coach for over a decade. I think it was from 2005 to 2017. Yeah. I think he left in February 2017, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. 
from that spell in the under 18s how did your methods of you know throughout the 12 years how did your methods of developing players change was there more tactical training or was it still did you always kind of keep the same le- the same kind of way of training players throughout those 12 years well i think we was always running right right the way through the club whatever it was that skill was king you know now that might be skillful defending skillful tank but we had to have skillful players you know they okay they got to have the physical side mental side but we needed skillful players so there was always skill skills practices um games that were for skill the skillful parts of the game and then we would break the game down into its parts you know like people do thirds or whatever you do certain scenarios that would come up that how, how do these skills come up so for instance if you're in the final third what's the different ways you get through so you get what you get through with um a run for a pass, diagonal run, a curved run, run in front, run behind, a spin. So you've got to practice that. And then, So that might be one part of a session, sets of games. Then if you can't get through and they're stopping those passes because they've got good defending, then you might have to move the defenders more um, to get through. So now you've got pass and run combinations. So we'd have pass and run combinations and disguise practice sessions for that. Um, if you can't do that, it would be dribbling. So we've got to make sure we've got dribbling in the sessions. And then you've got chronic crossing, finishing, power shooting. You know, all that would be a part of it. So you've got to have all those skills in place. And then if you've got those skills in place, now you can talk about the tactics, about why do we change the play? Do we drop off? How do we do it? How do we keep them in there? Like I said, there's a play around ring, around the last third, and a security ring to make sure you win it back. So you've got like Man City now putting the fullback into that security Mm -hmm. ring, making sure you've got enough people into it. So, yeah, so this is a mix. Is a is the yin and yang of oh, do you need technique? Do you need tactics? You need both. One can't work without the other. So you have to get the both and get the balance. Now, depending on what happens, probably uh, we were more because we had the street football, the four v fours, the skills at the bottom end. Then Rennie Mullenstein came in, who was a great influence with a lot of the cover stuff. So they were all pretty good technicians, turning, receiving, there. And then it came to a point where we started to watch all the Champions League games as well and so on. You say, well, some of our kids are getting away with it here because they've got these skills. They can wriggle out of a problem, but sometimes they get themselves in a problem because they're not prepared to receive the ball well enough. Their positioning hasn't been well good enough. So now we have to do more on that. And at that, that point, we were doing quite a lot of work, say, with Marcus Rashford on changing him from not just a dribbling winger to someone who could play up front and run behind. So you did a lot of specific work on the runs behind. Mm-hmm. Um, do you open up to get in behind? Do you make a spin? Do you run across the front? Do you run diagonally behind? Do you drop off on an angle? Do you give it and go? All these sort of things. And connecting that with the passer and receiver. So that's a tactical thing. You might say it's for one player. but it's And all, all three of his goals this season have been from running in behind. So it, yeah, that type it, of thing. Stuck with him. Again, he went, I think he did go off. The team was not looking for it. But he had a lot of changes. If you have a lot of change in personnel, that can happen. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's the strength. But it also needs the connection between the passer and receiver. So you've got to get a lot of those strengths in. So we felt, I thought I was on the way to doing that quite well. I was, I was, as, I was as I ended up leaving United. So then you've got the the sort of instinctive individual skills, but then more the individual tactics, how they prepare the position or, or defend it. And then that goes into the full team skills. And you find if you get good at on-the-ball skills, off-the-ball skills, then you can connect. You start to get those two things together and you get real control. But the, the real 
sort of top level football becomes more complex if you have three players. So it's A to B to C and C, B and C already know what's going on. They all, and A might be passing it to B to get it to C. So it might be up back through combinations or so that you, you need, but you can't get that unless the first one is good on the ball. You know, he can get his head up while he's got the ball. He's maybe drag, dodge, turn. Then he's going to get the, the, the movement from the player who's prepared it. He's playing that. And as he plays that, the third player is making the run already because all three of them are in the act. So that's that's as you get up higher into under 18s football. So you're trying to get more of that. Um, but what I have found in the last few years, probably since I left United, is because a lot more teams full time, they've got analysts, they've got, they're watching all the first team stuff, and the first teams are doing it more that the under 16s, 18s, so on, are going more team tactics, which is good. There's an improvement in everybody. But, and this is the work I did at the FA, is you've also got to be able to zoom in, not just 11 aside, zoom into the unit, the 3v3 or the unit, and then zoom into the 1v1 or off the ball. And that bit maybe, from what I've seen on courses and stuff, has been maybe... Um, neglected but only because there's been a big there's been a bigger focus on the team um which has been good people have improved on it mm. you know and i think it goes in phases then as a coach you improve on something then you think oh we've got to do this like i just said we were good on the instinctive stuff and you think yeah but we need to be better on the individual yeah. preparation and so on uh, uh, something i always wanted to know was how the system works between a player getting promoted to say the under twenty threes or to the first team. Did you have to provide reports <laughs> to the under twenty threes manager or to Sir Alex when he was in charge, or it was David Moyes and I think Louis as well and Jose towards the end? Um, did you have to provide reports to them when a player was ready to take the step up or to the under twenty threes manager first? Or how did that kind of how did it, that work? It wasn't it wasn't formal in that sense because by the time we got to that, say it was Warren Joyce. Now Warren Joyce. It was one of the first coaches I got in. He was still playing at Bolton or in Preston, Preston or maybe or somewhere, uh, Hull, uh, when uh, I got him to be the under-16 coach in the academy. So he was working a couple of nights part-time. So I knew him really well. And then I employed his dad as the, who was a master craftsman football guy, you know, Walter. So I knew them really well to help carry the coffin for Walter, uh, you know, on his funeral. So I knew him well. So there was a massive trust there. And both our dads had played for Lancashire boys together, got a very similar background. Um, probably I was more on the skill development, getting them until they were physically ready. Then they would go to Warren. He would get them physically ready and mentally ready for the first team and add on to the skills we'd done. So it complemented, we complemented each well, but also had a similar background. So it was easy to just talk to him. So then probably the most obvious case is that we worked together. See, we had Rashford. You could see he was a really talented player. He had his first year with the under-18s doing really well. And then we said, well, we want to try and make him, like I said before, uh, into a forward who could run behind us. We were doing a lot of work specifically for him, helped all the other players, but we're doing a lot of work. Sometimes walking it through, breaking it down, doing specific games for that. And then he was playing in the under-18s, so that was a little bit easier than if he'd gone to the reserves. And I did train with the reserves some of the time, but he had at least half the time or more time with us. But then he would maybe have the odd game for the reserves or, or so on. But he didn't do a lot, and Warren agreed to that because there you're saying... When someone's learning something new, don't then increase the the challenge. You know, you take them to the 
to the reserves. Now everybody's quicker, stronger. You, you know, he wouldn't have got through as easily. They're better defenders. So if he's learning something, give him more success. So he was then getting a lot of success in the under-18 game, so on. Played the odd game for the reserves. And I suppose he just got lucky that there was an injury. He played for the first team, scored a couple of goals, bang, bang, bang. And before you know it, he's in, he's in the England team. But that was, a, you know, a lot of clubs would be like, no, the under-23 under club, no, I've got to have him because they want to win the game because the ball flow the job or, the, or no, they don't see it. But we had a, a good partnership in that sense. Um, and the manager was always very trusting of us. You know, if we said someone's ready to come for training, he'd take them. You know, I remember Tom Cleverley. He was only small, he was a bit, but he's a really bright player, really coachable player. And I remember the manager coming back after this, yeah, he's done well. He said, he's got good eyes, hasn't he? And what does that mean to you? What do you think good eyes means? You know, he's got good vision. Right? And I knew exactly what I meant because all the way up from Tom being a small lad, if you were talking in a group of players, you would see his eyes. He was like zooming in on what you were saying. So the manager liked that. He's listening to me. He's going to take that on board. And then he ended up getting quite a few games in the first team. He, he did well. He impressed. So you've got to know when they're ripe for, to be, uh, for the managers to see them, yeah. And he's yeah, the Watford definitely. captain now, Tom Cleverley. And actually, Ben Foster uh, spoke about him before, and he said that when they're given, when he's given team talks, he said he really rallies the players up, and they almost mm-hmm. like, uh, like um, something from the film Three Hundred. It's just really mm-hmm. like he's, you know. So it's amazing that you you said yeah. that throughout your time at United. And I know you might be a bit modest here, but eighty-six players went on to make their first team debuts, and twenty-three were in, made international debuts, which is one and four almost genuinely amazing surely you must be proud of that record oh yeah I think everybody is and you know and sometimes not and we knew it was special period but sometimes it's not until you go outside and you see the rest of the world you see how difficult it is for everybody that you realize how special it was but there was so many things just came together obviously the manager was the thing was the the the, the, the great but you had a lot of people with similar mindset and so on and it was a it was quite a small group of people now for all good reasons the academies and so on now they've got more and more staff um for good reasons they're trying to get everything covered and so on but the more people you have the the more complex it is and the harder it is to keep every all the right threads going together and um, we had a lot of people who stayed for a long time um, you would do the amount of success we were having, but it was so enjoyable uh, and, yeah, challenging, but enjoyable that you, you get a consistency. Yeah, and that's what you need. You see people getting rid of managers or changing people in their academy. You really need consistency when you've got a good group of people there, yeah. How difficult was it to deal with the turnover of players in that role? Because I'd say maybe, I'm just guessing here, but say every two years, you'd almost have a completely different squad. So how difficult was it to kind of deal with that, constantly having new players to try and... Yeah, it, the it, it wasn't difficult for me because, as as I said before, when I started with the sense of excellence, there were no teams. There was one team on the 16th or something. So I, I was in charge and I brought in nearly all the staff or a lot of the staff that came at the start, Tom Statham, Tony Whelan, Dave Bushell came in uh, helping to oversee it, um, uh, t- John Cook, Tommy O'Neill, Mark Edwards, so on. So the first Warren Joyce, John Hill. So we that's where I brought them all in. So I was like showing a lot of what needs done and a lot of them that came through. So even when I went to the 18s, everybody knew. I'd, I knew all the people underneath, a lot of the people. Um, and then 
as the manager has always done, he watched the under-18s games. He came and sat and watched on the bench there and so on. So for me, that was just always, yeah, that, that's what I'll do. So although I was the under-18s coach, I, I went to watch all the games. I went on every Sunday virtually. Uh, so you watch all the games, the teams coming up, you ask the players. And then I had a Thursday off, but I didn't take the Thursday night off. Most times I went in and watched the players training. And then we went for a drink with coaches on the Thursday night, you know, so... It was seven days a week, but that was because it was easy for me. And I was lucky I lived close by and so on, but it meant I knew all the players, mm-hmm. you know, and all the coaches and, and we put on it, knew each other in that sense. So that it, it wasn't a big turn. And you'd have players coming up, you knew, well, I'll have him in the under-16s. And then we mixed them on a, on a Monday. We mixed them. We had this cage, so it'd be 13 aside, something like that, to make it really quick, dynamic games, skill games, uh, quick thinking combinations and but just quick quick reactions, quick clever play. And so that the young ones had learned from the older ones, we had the 16s in with the 18s. Then we started to put some 14s in and then we put a 12 in. So so really they were all mixing. So all the players, the best players knew each other. And there was also this manner scheme where they came at 12 to 16, some of the best players in the afternoons. So they all knew each other. So and I think that's that's important because they need to learn to mix with older and younger players. Mm-hmm. The older ones help the young ones out, make an example, and so on. Um, and then you had some players like, see, I was doing the Centre of Excellence. So Danny Welbeck is the, the player who I coached every age group, 8, 9, 10, 11. I wasn't, say, the team manager, but because it was full-time, I coached the, the sessions as well. And when he got to 16, I then moved to the 18s, and I picked him for the 18s because he was, you know, he was outstanding. So he played eight, nine, ten, all the way up. I coached him every year, you know, and he's a smashing player. He's a great lad. He, he was really... Had a fantastic career still. I mean, he's really, still really starts for Brighton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If he had those, those injuries, I think he'd have, mm-hmm. he'd have 80, 90 caps, I think, you know. You, I just want to touch quickly on your, your time after Manchester United. I'm aware we're coming up to, or just over time, so I can only apologise. But after you left Manchester United, you went to work for the FA and you helped to teach courses like the Pro Licence. David Moyes spoke before, I think, with the coach's voice it was, and he said about how it's so important that there's so many different football styles in, say, the Premier League, so the league mm-hmm. doesn't get boring and it makes the league so entertaining, which yeah. there are. I mean, you look at the teams, there are teams like his West Ham that may be sitting in a lower block, and then you have Manchester City, you have Liverpool, um, you know, even Manchester United now. How do you provide a coach when teaching the courses with the tools to stay true to their own ideas about how the game should be played and how players should be taught to develop their skills without hampering their own creativity and their own ideas yeah. within the courses by trying to keep everyone within the same line of thinking because I know that's it's yeah. been a, a criticism of courses in Germany and in Spain that they try and kind of keep you all in the same bracket of thinking. I think you got to remember a course is just like a touch point. It's, uh, it, it's, it's to get your thinking to stimulus. Your main education is come every day uh, with the people around you every day, the mentors you have or who you're watching or, or yourself working and experimenting, looking at things. So the courses are, are generally a stimulus and a way to get qualified in that sense, but to show what you can do. Um, the other side to it is, is because you've got so little time on a course, you, you really can't show everything. So... What you're really trying to do, or should be trying to do, is maybe show an example. So English, England have got a DNA. Well, that that's, doesn't mean they should. The, the club should do it. 
What you need is a thinking process and thinking tools say, this is how the process works. This is how we got to this. Now, you can use a similar thinking process. So the DNA, now all the people who made the DNA in England nearly all gone because you had uh, Aaron Danks was a big part of it. Neil Houston was a big part of it. Uh, Paul Simpson, people like that. And they did a great job. But remember what they were doing it for. They were doing it for the England teams and their own group of people. So it's not so much the DNA that is the vital bit. It's the whole lot of work they did discussing this, going back and forth, getting each other's ideas on it that really made that DNA useful. Someone else come from outside go, well, I'm not sure about it. So it's the process. Aaron Danks did a brilliant job once at Warwick University showing us the process they went through. And that's really what it's about, going through that process. So it's the, it's the thing of, um, you know, you're not going uh, uh, to catch, catch a man a fish who's hungry. You're going to teach him teach him how to fish so that's what courses and stuff should be so it's more about process this is a process you go through here's a thinking process about how you how you would um you know look at the game or so on it doesn't mean it's the way to do it it's just a way to give you a, a, a thinking tool so for instance um the, the one i've used recently i have called it under the under the microscope it's just a thinking tool an observational tool to direct and educate people's attention so, and lots of people know the information, but it helps if you've got it systematically so you, you, you don't miss anything. But also it means you can systematically look through these things with all your staff, your interdisciplinary staff. So, so um, the one I've done is, you could say the spirit of football is in there. Do they show that the players? But the main thing is positioning. So how do they position before, during, and after? And this is contextual to what type of player they are, who they're playing against, what's the scoreline, all these things. But what's their positioning? And how do they uh, gain advantage by position or body position? Then what's their scanning like? How often do they look? When do they look? So on. What's the skills? Next one uh, we've used is movement. I'm going to be all types of movement, but jockeying, walking, running backwards, transition between each one, the speed of them, all these things. How do they do it? How fluid are they? Um, then it can be disguised, hiding your intentions, disguising your intentions. And the next one is timing. So how quick do you play it? Or do you leave it to the last second or... And the last one is all the techniques, range of techniques. So that's, a, that's just a model. People look at football, they'll see all those things. But if systematically, if we don't do that, that means the analyst can be looking at one set of things look one way. The, the sports scientists can look at that. The under 18, 16, 15, 14 coach can all look at it differently. Now, we want you all to bring what you've got to the table because you might. So we were on a course, Danny Dicchio, and he, he said, well, I, this is the way I do that run. I do it differently. I go, right, great. That goes in my locker. And I'll put that in the filing cabinet and everybody can share and build uh, better things. So that is a way of using a, a mental model to systematically help. When you've got a lot of people, you've got to try and give some stable ideas and stable views. So uh, that's how I think courses could and should help, you know, and, and form a stimulus for that. Outside then of things you learned or you would use on the training pitch, what did the pro license teach you? And um, yeah, the, it had a lot of good things on leadership and, and so on. Um, the Google guys were good on creative thinking. And I think it's something missing because you get in football and it's seven days a week and you're on the, you're on the hamster wheel. You've got to get your club going in and, and you've got to think and look, for, look at things from a different angle sometimes. So I remember one exercise they did on that was a really good exercise. And before they did the exercise, they did some fun uh, warm-ups to get you in, in the mood, you know, for, for creative thinking. And um, they they just put out this this he put it up on the on the on the board. And it's it's it's, um, it's uh, an airplane. 
And uh, the question was, what would be what would be the benefits if we had the seats on the outside of the plane on the wings? So now you got to think about it, and you go, what's the benefits of that? Well, fresh air. The air is fresher than inside. <laughs> so, as someone said, you've got a great view. You've got a panoramic view. You can see all around, not just that little hole. And they said, okay, that's an idea. Well, what if we made the windows bigger? But actually, he said that the little small windows that, are like, that were taken from a cabin on the ships, ocean liners, that, that's one of the thickest, heaviest parts of the plane with the glass. To make them bigger, it's going to cost you money. So the, the next thing is you've got some planes now who will put alongside the wall a projection, however they do it, of a film that's going on from below. So the whole of the side of the wall is looking out. You can see what's happening down below. So they go, that's a good idea that came from just having this mm-hmm. daft idea. You know, another one said, well, you'll be quicker off the plane or what have you. So well, how could we get people quicker off the plane? You know, so so now you'd apply that to football in, in, in different ways. How could we beat the defense? What could we do? You know, I mean, so like one thing that bugs me at the moment is I don't think the kids know it's this is like what happens. Everybody follows everybody in football. So from the kickoff, 99% of people just passed it back. Because you can do now, whereas before you had to pass it forward first, so you had two people there. But that doesn't mean you can't pass it forward. So they never get two people on the ball. Now, if you get two people on the ball now, the other team might not be ready. You, get, you can go forward, you play a one-two, or you've got some of these great goals recently where he did it. Uh, Bournemouth it was. Bournemouth did yeah. it. And Real Madrid had done it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Real Madrid copied Bournemouth. But it's a, great, it's a great goal, isn't it? So that's different thinking. So... That's the sort of thing I think you need more of. Yeah, different thinking and uh, and things like that. I thought it was very good. That's brilliant. I really like that. Um, the last question I want to ask you is, and I like to end every podcast on this because it's just for, it's something I'm interested to know. Who have been your biggest coach and inspiration throughout your career? Well, I suppose that's easy in the point of like my dad, mm-hmm. just going on the playing fields with the England international, he's putting it exactly on the spot and so on. But uh, he both... It had to be excellent all the time. So if it's going to ping it harder at me, hit, hit me harder. Now, if I missed, say I'm pinging it from 30 yards and I didn't get it straight to his feet, he'd give me a look, you know. If I did it twice, I had to run past him and get the ball. You know, it's like it's not good enough. But at the same time, he would be doing these extravagant tricks. So he had a trick, uh, a, a trick he had off Hento. So you'd ping the ball at his forehead and he would dive forward with and do a handstand and back heel the ball back to you with his hands with his heels. Now, I've never seen anybody else ever do that, you know? But what he was saying was, look, you've got to be entertaining in this game. You've got to enjoy things. And I don't know if you remember 1970 World Cup, the clips, Pele letting the ball run as he's going through towards the goalkeeper. Yes, yes, go past. Now, I saw that when I was a kid and thought, wow, that's brilliant. And this is the same game, or, or definitely the World Cup. He shoots from like 10 yards inside his own half. But misses, you know, both times he missed. Both missed, but, yeah. but, the, but the ideas were brilliant. So every time I went on the field with my dad, there was a pitch there and I would shoot. He'd say, shoot from the halfway line. As we, we was on our way back home. So we would, I'd shoot from the halfway line and try and score, you know? And although I didn't do it in a league game, I did it in a university game, I did it once from the kickoff. You know, it was touch side, goal. Nobody t- they hadn't touched the ball. And it gave me so much pleasure having tried it. Mm-hmm. And he he was there with me that that trying something different 
was great. I had I used to have Ollie Norwood doing it in our youth team because he got, got great ping, you know. So asking people to do something different that all came from my dad. But he then told me stories about um, about Jimmy Murphy. So he was like, even though I never knew him, he was a hero for some of the things he he, he did with my dad and uh, and you know, what he did after Munich and all these things. And I, I went to um, it was a memorial for him. They put a blue plaque on his house in in Pentra in in the valleys where the mines were, you know, and um, a lot of old United players went out and there was a, there was a do afterwards in, um, how was this old social club where you could see he was growing up singing and, but he, the, the pit head was 200 yards from his house and you could see it's a little terrace two up, two down and you could see how he was growing the environment that brought it through and, and similar say with Sir Alex, the background from the hip build and all those things, the, the, the background that, that, that gave him a lot of the values. Um, but I was so lucky. I had a guy called Mike Holiday, who was the football coach at Loughborough. He was the first coach I had. He never shouted from the side. He never shouted anything. And I was looking over what's going on, what's going on. But he was so much free to play. And then he would come at half time, give two or three main points. And after the game, because we were at college, he'd go as well. He'd go, uh, okay, look on the board and uh, put your name down for a time and then come and see me. You go sit and talk to him for half an hour. I thought, this is a better way of coaching. You know, this is. And shouting ball and throwing things at each other and mm-hmm. and he was way ahead of his time but I, I was looking at a Loughborough guy called Jim Greenwood one of the best rugby coaches ever took the rugby course he was inspirational absolutely inspirational the guy um, Thorpe and Bunker they they were at the forefront of world leading um, world leading games for understanding you know they were like you don't realise until you go somewhere else and you see they're not as good these guys were were fantastic. So I, I, I've been, I work with Graham Carrick, uh, Michael's brother. He's at Newcastle now. He's at Newcastle yeah. now. Really good, good guy. Real good thoroughbred in, in, in well, uh, upbringing in football. West Graham Ham. played in Michael's uh, testimonial. That's right. Uh, that's he, yeah. And he was, I don't think he was ever a professional player. So I didn't quite know who it was when he came on. Yeah. He was bad when he came Yeah, on. no, he played for West Ham. He just got, he had an injury. So, <laughs> But he always says to me, well, we, and but he says, you, you've had football privilege. I think of the people I've been next to and so on, um, to see all those things, to have the opportunity to learn from them. Sir Alex, you know? I mean, Sir Alex is known for this uh, hairdryer stuff, isn't he? You know, I love the hairdryer. But the first, F, uh, first time I was in the dressing room for a first-team match, as it was one of the coaches had come in at half time, you know, he was great like that. Bring some, bring young players in, see us, whatever. Mm-hmm. You take them and they'd go in the dressing room and so on. This game was at Aston Villa. Well, nil nil at half time. So I get in there, see what he does, see how he really earns his money. It's half time. He's going to be right into them and get in there. They're all sat down quiet. He goes in the corner, pours a cup of tea, sits there, has a cup of tea. Ryan Kidd just wanders around with a couple of individuals. And I mean, when's he going to say anything? And two minutes before the bell to go out, so he's, he's obviously created this atmosphere of calm. He's, he's content. He says, right, you're doing fine. You're doing great. He says, um, you can keep the football going. He says, just the pitch is really firm. So when you're playing it through balls from any distance, it's running through to the goalkeeper. He said, just keep your passes shorter until you get closer to the line, then it runs to the line. Okay, go on then. Out they go, and you're like, geez. And he did it 
you see, the clever thing about it is he's making them feel relaxed because they're thinking, what's he going to say? And then he says nothing. He's having a cup of tea, so he's dead calm. They're, they're chilled, no problem. And he doesn't say the, what he wants to say at the first two minutes, where then everybody's going to be talking and chatting around. He leaves it right for the death, and he gives it the two, minute, you know, two minutes before they go out. Like three coaching points, two, three coaching points. You know, so there's... There's a whole craft in, in all of that that people forget. They often talk too much to players, yeah. Yeah, because you, you said, actually, I remember I asked Randy Mullenstein when he was on, and I said, obviously, we, we all know about the infamous hairdryer treatment. I said, but did he did he ever have, did you ever feel pressure from him or did he ever kind of lose his mind at you? And he, he basically said never. He said he never, he was always so calm around the coaches, especially, which I thought was uh, really interesting, even though you hear these stories about, him losing his mind at certain things but yeah no it's a, that's amazing to hear Paul thank you so much for coming on this is a, an amazing chat and I wish you all the best in the future good thank you I hope you all enjoyed this episode today I know I certainly did Paul was very kind he stayed actually 20 minutes over which is my my poor timekeeping but I was very interested in what he had to say about everything he was very open, speaking about his father, Wilf, and how important he was for his, you know, taking his four steps into, helping him take his four steps into coaching. Spoke about the grace from Matt Budsby, Jimmy Murphy, even the grace for Alex Ferguson, and also how he developed players from the under-18s into the fourth team. And especially, I was interested in knowing how he developed Marcus Rashford in from a, a you know, a, a wide left forward who would constantly take players on, but was maybe a bit, one-dimensional and instead he became this almost guy who can play uh, well as a number nine he makes runs in behind diagonal runs across the center halves and you see that now at Manchester United under Eric Ten Hag he's making those runs in behind and I think he scored three goals this season from doing so you can find Total Football Analysis on Twitter at Total Analysis you can find myself on Twitter at Ace 24 I hope you enjoyed the podcast and I'll see you again next week goodbye for now